Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books in some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine or culture. St. Gregory the Great was Bishop of Rome from 590 to 604. The son of St. Sylvia and Gordianus, a Roman patrician, he was appointed urban prefect of Rome in 573 and entered monastic life the following year. Upon his father's death, he converted the family's Roman villa on the Chelian Hill into the Monastery of St. Andrew, where today there is still a monastery and the Church of St. Gregory on the Chelian Hill. At that same monastery, he set the precedent for the Gregorian series of Masses, the practice of celebrating 30 Masses for a deceased person. In 579, Pope Pelagius II made him a deacon and sent him as papal ambassador to the imperial court in Constantinople. In 590, a few years after his return to Rome, Gregory was elected pope. One of his most important actions as Bishop of Rome was to appoint the prior of the monastery of St. Andrew, Augustine of Canterbury, as the head of a mission to convert the English. Through his writings, he exerted an immense influence in spirituality and ministry in the Latin Church throughout the Middle Ages, and was recognised as a doctor of the Church. In this interview, Dr Thomas Humphreys will explain his pick of the five best books by St Gregory the Great. Dr Thomas Humphreys is Professor in the College of Arts and Science at St Leo University of Florida, a native of Arkansas and a lifelong Roman Catholic, he holds a mandatum from the Diocese of St. Petersburg and enjoys giving regular theological reflections outside of the classroom with student faith communities, parishes and monasteries. He also volunteers with the local fire department as chaplain and holds the rank of district chief. He is a licensed Florida EMT and NREMT and he is the author of Ascetic Pneumatology, published by Oxford University Press, and Who is Chosen, published by Whiff and Stock. Professor Humphreys, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. To kick off, what would you add to the preceding biographical sketch of St. Gregory the Great? My goodness, you, you remembered so many wonderful details. I, I think with the lives of the saints, you know, we want to interpret those details or be sure that we understand the meaning of the life of the saint. So if you think of someone like Gregory, you know, donating his property to be a monastery, that's a relatively common thing for, you know, wealthy men who are sort of looking to retire. But one of the tricks that would happen in in that era, say, give or take 200 years around Gregory, you know, you donate the property to the church, you'd call it a monastery, but then you would name yourself as the superior of the monastery. And it was kind of a, a way of of kind of playing both ends, right? I want to be a monk. I want to be holy. I want to pursue this life of virtue. But I do not want to start at the beginning of the ladder. And Gregory does exactly the opposite. He says, if I'm going to donate this property and I'm going to be a monk, then I need to live under obedience to someone else. And so he does not name himself superior of his own community. He subjects himself to formation. And I mean, what a what a wonderful lesson in humility, an example of how to how to truly embrace a life of holiness and admit that we're all children of God. We're all in need of formation from from the church before us. 
even if like Gregory were going to be known as, you know, the great and, and, and well, Gregory didn't know he would earn that title from, from popular acclamation, but you see why he's the great, right? There, there's that humility. Similarly, you know, if, if we just want to take a lesson in like secular history, uh, I think there's a lot going on in, in Gregory that shows why he's such a fantastic leader, why everybody was clamoring after him to be their leader. And it's because as as leader, he knows he's got to earn his spot. He's got to pay his dues. We sometimes say, you know, he he's going to start and learn everything from the bottom up. And and we see this over and over again in Gregory's life that he's really committed to the work that needs to be done for the same reason he will be hesitant. You know, he he resists being made one of the seven deacons of Rome. And that that's not a position like, you know, your parish deacon is today. That's um, it's not necessarily an ordination in, in the sense that we think of it. It's it's a it's a real position, right? It's out of that sense that we develop the cardinals, the clergy of Rome who conduct important uh, Roman business, meaning worldwide business. He's reluctant to go to Constantinople. He essentially refuses to be the pope's designee there unless the pope will also send some of his monks with him because he knows he needs community. He knows he needs to be a part of that that life of virtue, that life of holiness. So I, I think at any point, as always, we can meditate on the lives of the saints and see the work of God through them. But for Gregory, boy, it, it really stands out that he's living the life of humility. And why is St. Gregory the Great worth reading today? Well, I suppose, you know, there's some people who are simply interested in historical figures. And when you're interested in historical figures, it's not always just the time or the details, the anachronistic bits that that draws to those people, but the whole personality. And, you know, you're you're talking about a man, the second pope to earn, in essence, the civil accolade, the great. Right. I mean, think about Constantine the Great or, you know, like like what does it take for Western history to hail you with that title? Magnus, uh, St. Leo, Pope uh, a few generations before Gregory was the first pope to earn that title the great and gregory's the second so it's like if you're interested in historical figures and and you want to read someone who did a lot and did wonderful things pick somebody who's got the title the great you know might, might as well be gregory but in terms of specific things that are going on today gregory has this this incredible call to the struggle of the present life and he he's at a time in history when things are changing. You know, historically, people, professional historians want to debate, like, when is the end of this era and when is the beginning of the next era? When did antiquity end? When did medieval begin? What's Byzantine? What's not? These are all very difficult questions to try to draw lines in periods of history. But there's no doubt about it. Wh whichever way you argue as a professional historian, Gregory is at a cusp. He's, he's on that edge. And there's a lot of turbulence at the edge, but there's a lot of profound things that happen. Just just incredible lessons to be learned about how someone could navigate all of that turbulence. And maybe it's the case that every generation feels like it's in turbulence. You know, it, we're, <laughs> this is the dawn of a new age. We're we're the generation that sees the old go out and the new come in. Maybe that's kind of perennial and, and everyone faces it. But 
I mean, absolutely, that's the way we feel today, right? So many things going on that seem to have consequences beyond what we can understand in the present time. And Gregory's a figure there. And so we can take solace in his ability to admit the struggle and to carry on. And and a significant part of what Gregory admits, which is difficult for us to hear, but which we need to hear, is that, you know, despite the incredible goodness we can find in this life, and in the face of the incredible evil and atrocity, we know that this life is not the life for which we're intended. This is not the life that we ultimately want. And so we read Gregory today, and he he reminds us, sometimes it's more than reminds us, he even scolds us. Do not place all of your hope in things that pass. Pay careful attention to the to the times. Read the signs. Learn how to live in the world in order to, as you aptly noted, be a servant of the servants of God. But recognize that all of that is is ultimately rooted in God, and it's ultimately headed towards God. This life is sometimes wonderful. This life is sometimes difficult. Regardless, this life is not the life that that we intend, that we want, and for Gregory, for which we hope. In one way or another, each of St. Gregory's works boils down to biblical commentary, or as befits a monk, a sort of Lexio Divina. Modern readers might, may find it difficult to follow his train of thought or appreciate his insistence at times on the allegorical sense of the scriptural passages. Do you have any tips for reading St. Gregory? I, I do. Uh, and I'm glad you noted that the Lexio Divina seeing a, a renewal, a revival, maybe in the last 30 years. There's lots of literature out there. You can find YouTube videos on it. You know, you can find dozens of books, even on Amazon.com uh, about Lexio. And so what's that? And then uh, allegorical commentary is often not understood, period. And if it is sort of understood, sometimes it, it's misunderstood. Uh, and yeah, that, that can set you up to have a difficult time with Gregory. Um, Gregory... Gregory's very clear in a number of his commentaries, kind of at the opening, like in the Song of Songs or Moralion Job, or sometimes when he's just commenting on a particular text, he's preaching in church, and he'll say, look, I know there's questions of authorship here. Who wrote the book of Job? You got five options of, of who could have written it or what the history is of it. That's worth thinking about, he'll say, but then he'll kind of conclude with this, but who cares? Who cares? Because what we're looking at in in this text is the life of someone who was guided by the holy spirit we're looking at a holy man or a holy woman who led his life in such a way that he was perfectly permeable to god's action in his life and the reason we read scripture gregory says is not simply you know to learn those historical details those are important but that's like first level the real reason that we're reading scripture is to encounter the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, to encounter Christ in the words on the page. The the real reason that we want to read an inspired text, which tells us about other inspired humans, is so that we too come in contact with that Holy Spirit and become holy people, inspired people. Right, so, you know, if you're thinking of scripture as just a book and you're thinking, Oh, you know, um, well, one of the prophets, Ezekiel, wrote this down. And so what I'm reading is Ezekiel's thoughts. 
Gregory's going to push back against you and say, you're you're reading Ezekiel's thoughts, but Ezekiel's thoughts are important because they're God's thoughts. It's God who has worked in Ezekiel's life to allow him to see this truth. And what you want is not just to learn how Ezekiel felt or or to be able to repeat what he said. You want to become a prophet. So read the prophets to become a prophet yourself, right? And and this is exactly the same as participating in the sacraments. We don't go to the Eucharist simply to be able to write a beautiful philosophical exposition you know, on the categories of presence and whether God can be present to us or not or how. That's important work. But we go to the Eucharist in order to be nourished by Christ. And, and so we open the words of Scripture, and what we want is not just an encounter with a text, but an encounter with the word. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth summarized this very well. He said, you know, Christians are not people of the book. We're people of the word, the second person, the Trinity, the Son of God, the word who became flesh. Now, Gregory knows that, lives that in every, I mean, like letter of scripture. He can find multiple layers of meaning. And so what we have to do is is be open, like with our memory, with our mind, to see in Gregory make more than one interpretation of an event to say, look, God was working in the life of Job, and and that doesn't mean just one thing. So here's a, a favorite example. Uh, I'm thinking of some passages in early in the Moralia on Job. This is this is where Gregory is sort of challenged, I think, by his fellow monks to interpret the book of Job. It's a very difficult book, right? Suffering pain you know job seems to be a righteous man that that god leaves to be tempted by the the devil or the demon and and what's going on with that all right so the monks kind of poke gregory and say hey you know you're so good at this why don't you give us an interpretation and gregory says yeah i'll give you an interpretation i'll give you three interpretations of every verse i'll tell you what it means in the historical and the literal sense then i'm going to tell you what it means in an allegorical sense then i'm going to tell you what it means in a moral sense there's a lot going on here all right, so Job has seven sons, and he has three daughters. In the literal historical sense, the guy's got ten kids. He's got a big family. Gregory reflects on what it means to have a big family and, and, and this kind of status. In the allegorical sense, the seven sons – I mean this is just it, – it's incredible. It's fun. It's meant to be exciting. How do you get seven? Well, seven is four plus three, an even number plus an odd number. So there's some tension in there. And four plus three, well, that lets us think about four times three. Four times three is 12. Job's sons are a type of the church, the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, so the reason that God had Job and his wife have seven sons is in order to be a type of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, and the church. Why do they have three daughters then? Well, you have three daughters because in essence, in the church, you have three sort of ranks, three groups, three orders of people. You have the preachers, the clergy, you have the celibates, the nuns, the monks, and you have the married. Uh, and so you got to see in Job's family this complete kind of depiction of the church. Again, it, it's why did God allow Job to have seven sons and, and three daughters. Right, that's the allegory. It, it points to the church. It tells us something about the structure of the church. Now, in the moral meaning, well, seven, there's seven virtues. 
the four cardinal virtues, the three theological virtues, right? Uh, and so you have to think about the moral life in terms of virtue. Why the three daughters? Well, Gregory says, you know, uh, God wants to highlight faith, hope, and love as particularly distinct. Add the seven to the three, get the ten. Talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Talk about the fruits of the Spirit. You know, all of this is laid in there. And I think you have to be in a position in which you see that as beautiful, that Job's life and Job's family could have multiple meanings. If you come at it from a position of, I would like to have one thesis and argue tooth and nail that my interpretation is correct and your interpretation is wrong, then you're you're not doing what Gregory's doing and you've closed yourself down to multiple layers of meaning in scripture. I'd, I'd like to make one other point because sometimes it strikes us as like awkward, right? Well, couldn't it mean anything? Uh, you know, what, what's the limits on a moral interpretation or an allegorical interpretation or the historical interpretations? Well, the I mean, the limits are the truth. The limits are the inspiration, as you say, your own prayer in, in a way of reading divinely or reading for the divine, that Lexio Divina. But we have to think about the limits on on meanings of our own lives. Our lives have meaning, right? Like like my name is Thomas Humphreys Jr. and and by meeting me today or by seeing this video, you already know that there's a Thomas Humphrey Sr. It's like my very existence, my very presence means something at the level of other humans. And I mean, you don't know her name yet, but you know my mom, Joan. Right. Like like in seeing any child, you know something about that child's parents, that child's history. And so it's not just the words that I speak, but like the very presence tells you that there's a man and a woman who loved each other and and, you know, decades ago raised a child. Uh, in other words, our lives at a regular level have multiple layers of meaning. Absolutely. The lives of of the holy men and women recounted in scripture have multiple layers of meaning and why since why isn't gregory's collection of 40 homilies on the gospel your first recommended book i i i thought a lot about that you know what what would the first book be there's one there's an issue of practicality uh you know if if, if you're catholic you want to read commentary on scripture there's a zillion different things out there. It's very confusing. It's frustrating. And there's also often a question of like, well, that was a smart interpretation, but is it right? Is it holy? Is it going to lead me to a virtuous life? Am I drawing closer to God with this? And so I think people want to study the scriptures. And, and the scriptures for Catholics, you know, don't come to us simply as a Bible that sits on the shelf and we we open it up and, and read it as a thing of study, the scriptures actually come to us in liturgy. It's the lectionary which makes scriptures alive, I think, in the experience of, of Catholics. That was certainly, you know, my experience. Long before I got a Bible open and learned to study the Bible, I was going to Mass and hearing the scriptures proclaimed at Mass and, and hearing the scriptures preached. So something like 40 Gospel Homilies uh, this is a collection of some of Gregory's best homilies, and they're organized according to the scripture passage, the gospel that was that was prescribed in the lectionary. And now the lectionary changes 
back and forth. But many of these passages are still the same. I mean, the Christmas reading is the Christmas reading, right? The the ascension is the ascension. Uh, the kinds of uh, passages that we use to celebrate the the virgin martyr saints or to celebrate doctors these these things don't change they're deep and meaningful and so you can pick up a copy of of 40 gospel homilies and you can essentially work through a liturgical year and say oh this was gregory's homily on pentecost i'll read just gregory's homily on pentecost this week to prepare for pentecost or maybe right after pentecost in, in other words the very practical sense of 40 homilies, 52 weeks in a year, I can sort of do one a week, make my way through it, and it will help me engage Scripture in the truly Catholic way, in in the liturgical way, in the lectionary way. But in a sense of aesthetics, those homilies are just profound, and and I mean sometimes they're funny, uh, like like well you can see the hair pattern I have, uh, Gregory's interpretation of Pentecost, right, the tongues of flame of the Holy Spirit coming down, burning the hair off the heads of the apostles to make them holy. Ha ha, I, you know, I, I like that interpretation. But but then you get, why does the Spirit appear sometimes as a dove and sometimes as a tongue of fire? There's a problem, and we need to think about that. What's going on with that? Why does God choose to manifest himself in different ways? And when we think about the tongues of fire, Gregory will make a little play on the language. Well, the fire comes because this is a, a consuming fire. This should be like your prayer. This should be like your virtue. You're, you're eat up, as we say in Florida. You're, you're totally consumed with God. But the spirit comes as a tongue because it's by a tongue that one speaks the word. You can never separate the son from the spirit. You get this this back and forth in really deep, profound theology, the relationship between the Word of God and the Spirit of God, the Trinity, and between this, this well-known event that we hear every year, Pentecost, the Spirit coming down, and, and, and then some sense of what that might mean for me. How could I learn to speak with a tongue of fire, to speak with anointed tongue, with, 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 with the Holy Spirit within me? Uh, the homilies, like I say, they're, they're practical, they're beautiful. And there's always something surprising to see in what Gregory does with with the interpretation of those texts. And next is in Gregory's most ambitious work, his commentary on the book of Job, Expositio in Job. A grant of a series of lectures he gave under the encouragement of St. Leander of Seville to the monastic community who resided in during his stay at Constantinople. It's become known as Moral Reflections on Job, uh, because in, in the later books, he passes over the literal sense and focuses on the moral sense of the biblical text. Job is a type of Christ and the church, but his morally, his experience is representative of the spiritual journey of every Christian. Is this book Gregory's Summa Theologiae? Well, I, it could rightly be compared to something like that, right? Like, you know, a, a great medieval summary or synthesis of theology, as well as kind of the heights of my ability as a theologian. Um, I think it definitely gets the heights of Gregory's ability. He's he's at his best in many passages of the Moralia. But it is not a summa in the flip side, and, and it's the side that frankly makes it annoying for some people. It's not a systematic theology. And so, you know, you you cannot pick up any of Gregory's works 
and try to find just a treatise on Christology, right? If you want to know what Gregory thinks about grace or you want to know what he thinks about original sin, there's not there's not just a five-page quick exposition of that where he's going to tell you, this is what I think. This is what other people think. This is why they're wrong. You get that in many of the summas. You do not get that in Gregory, and especially you do not get it in the Moralia. So I think there are two ways to read a text like the Moralia. One is you're committed to seeing what's there, and you're going to spend your 20 minutes a day reading, and it's going to be fun and entertaining. And some days it's going to be entirely uplifting, and some days you're going to kind of chuckle, and and that's a great way to do it. But the other way is actually to read the Moralia by the index. And uh, there, the Moralia is available online and older translations so you can also use your computer just to search the text if, if you want to deal with you know 20th century translations and they're great indices available in the the modern translations but you know I, I was I was thinking the other day about Jacob at the Jabbok this is in Genesis 32 and and this is Jacob the brother of Esau right uh, and I mean this is a, a very famous passage and no one knows what it means it's where Jacob wrestles with the the ish it says in hebrew the man the dude the guy uh and and later hosea tells us ah, it was an angel and 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 jacob tells us at the end of the struggle uh it's god i've seen the face of god so is it a man is it an angel is it god uh and and well in the exchange jacob's name is changed to israel so this is like the meaning of all of judaism right what what's going on in this you've struggled with god uh is something happening well i wanted to know what gregory thought about this passage but Gregory doesn't have like a commentary on Genesis, uh, you know, so you, you can't do that. So what did I do? I looked at the index. I looked at the index for Jacob, you know, the patriarch, and then it turns out there, there are, you know, three, four passages in the Moralia where Gregory's commenting on Job. He's making a point, and then he says, hey, this is like Jacob, and then he tells you what Jacob means. And so you could either read it left to right like we normally do. But then you're in for like three dozen books. I mean, this is multiple volumes if you want to get through all the Moralia. Or you can read it right to left. You can flip to the back. You can say, today, I would like to know something about the virtue hope. Where does Gregory discuss hope? And what you'll find is a dozen passages where Gregory, like when he's interpreting the daughters of Job as faith, hope, and love, then he'll have a paragraph on the second daughter on hope. And you can go kind of pull out all of those selections on hope and get these mini meditations, right to left or left to right. I think both are great ways to read something like the Moralia. It will only come across as a summa in the sense of, um, you know, systematic theology, reflecting continuously on a particular topic if you read it right to left, if you use that index in the back of the book to kind of tell you which pages to read. And if you're going to do this, I'll tell you what, you know, all of us academics do, because this is essentially how we figure things out. I, I don't remember all 35 books of the Moralia at, at once. Uh, no, I read and I think, man, that was a really good interpretation. And so I open a file on my computer and it's called Gregory on Hope or Gregory on Virtue. And I just I say, you know, oh, at Moralia 1, 17, 9, Gregory talks about hope. And, and I kind of type out the quote and then. Months later, sometimes years later, I'm able to go back and say, boy, I, I need to reflect on hope, and I've already got three pages of little excerpts. Uh, in essence, I make my own floral agia, sometimes called little, little passages that comment on a theme. 
Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive, visit 5booksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound or one Europe can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again and God bless.